Chapter 3 of Adventures of the Infallible Godal by Frederick Irving Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night of a Thousand Thieves Tucked away toward the apex of the island at the battery are a few irregular city blocks over which the figure of sleep seems to hover with a finger on her lips. The stillness that falls here when the day's work is done is sepulchral. To the west is lower Broadway, feebly sensuous even in the small hours, a thin stream of cars and the occasional rumble of the underground still evidencing that the line of life linking two days is not yet broken. To the north is Newspaper Row, glowing with its perpetual flame of eternal wakefulness, functioning stridently at the approach of dawn when only the cock should be crowing. To the east is the river, gleaming with the arching lights of the bridges, dull with the shadows of silent looming ships and creeping barges turning to and fro sluggishly with the tide. It is drowsing, but it does not sleep. A winch rattles. The exhaust of a straining engine breaks a blank wall of darkness, and a blinding beam of intense electric blue breaks through the dull shadows of a freight house to show that labor still strains and sweats even at the darkest hour. The heart is slow, but it still pulses. The city never sleeps, except here in this tiny triangle, an inverted triangle, its base the lane where the greatest jewelers in the world are massed, its apex the street, the financial vortex of the nation, where fortunes change hands every minute. Here, where life is at its highest tension during daylight hours, it is as silent as death now, its towering facades of marble, granite, and sandstone as dull as some long-forgotten city. A footfall among the long shadows starts a hollow song of echoes. A policeman, drowsing against some grill, lets fall his club, and the rattle is like the roar of artillery. No wheel is stirring, no human being abroad, except the slouching night watchmen gossiping together in some dark arch in whispers. Within a stone's throw on each hand are riches beyond definition, beyond the power of a mint to duplicate. Here are cold vaults of gold and storehouses of jewels so rare that guardians of flesh and blood have been swept aside and intricate, unerring mechanism installed in their stead. Hidden wires, as sensitive as raw nerves, creep hither and yon to every corner into honeycombs of cells encased with concrete, steel, and live steam. 1. Officer 004 was sorrowfully executing a vamp on the tessellated pavement of the corridor of the International Life Building, interjecting syncopations with snaps of his fingers to the tune of meditation that was running through his head. It was a cruel task for a young man to be condemned to the very silences of these ghoulish defiles. All must serve, but some must stand and wait. To stand and wait with majestic uplifted finger in the maelstrom of 34th Street and 5th Avenue was one thing. To haunt a graveyard that could not even boast a rabbit was quite another, and not at all in keeping with the dignity he had absorbed from his book of rules when he was presented with his shield and heard his chief depicting the glory of his calling. Occasionally a night watchman in heretical gray slunk by, but it is more simple to extract blood from a stone than companionship from one of these low-caste civilians. 
At this hour even the nocturnal scrub women had long since put on their shoes and gone home. At the lower end of his beat, toward the river, dwelt the one human being whom Officer 004 could cultivate consistently through the six weary hours of his watch. That was Long John, the hot-dog man, whose steaming kettle of frankfurters simmered plaintively through the hours of the night, inviting passing sailormen or spelling night-toiling longshoremen. Stealthily, the whisking feet of the policeman wiped the pavement of the corridor to the tempo of his snapping fingers as he meditated on the sorrows of life and the lonesomeness of death. Suddenly, the resonant air of the ghoulish defiles was smitten with the bang-bang of an automobile exhaust. Now an automobile in itself was as welcome a sight to our policeman as a sportive whale to a ship in the doldrums. But an automobile that came to a jarring standstill with a squealing of brakes, jammed on by no tender hand, suggested not only an event, but an adventure. The quick brain of our officer noted, furthermore, from the gloom of his corridor, that this car came to a stop on the left side of the street, hard against the curb. Rule number 26, in the little blue book he carried buttoned inside his blouse, stated plainly that such an offense against well-seasoned traffic rules is punishable by fine or imprisonment or both. However, from the look of things, and particularly from the sounds that emerged from the two passengers, this automobile was enjoying rare good fortune to be able to come to a stop at all, regardless of the rules of the road. When the muffler of the engine suddenly blew its head off with a loud bang, the car was sliding down the incline in the canyon that dumps Nassau Street into the hollow that was once, in the long ago, a meandering brook flanked by a romantic cowpath, still known by the name of Maiden Lane. Our officer brought his vamping feet to a standstill and exercised his discretion. He might vary the monotony, establish a reputation for himself, in fact, by bringing in a prisoner from this solemn spot, which slept with both eyes shut at night. But, he reflected, the misdemeanor was just round the corner from the confines of his beat, and was therefore the concern of his partner, Mulligan, who was not in sight. Also, tomorrow was his day off, and he must choose, and choose quickly, between going to court and going fishing. He decided in favor of the latter, as the season was well advanced, late October, and weak fish would be migrating at the first opportunity. He tinctured his decision with the reflection that traffic rules are made solely for traffic, a condition that obviously did not exist at the moment, and therefore rule number 26 would never know the difference if it were not called into use for the present emergency. The decision was proved especially happy by what followed. Evidently his new friends were in for quite a stay, at least it appeared they would tarry to keep him company until his relief arrived. Strange noises were emerging from the engine, even now after the pistons had come to a halt. One of the passengers dismounted with much difficulty on account of a greatcoat. He stretched himself, yawned, and divested himself of his greatcoat, and then carefully picked out the sharply corrugated surface of a manhole cover as the couch on which he might rest while he made astronomical observations under the car. Why a man should pick out a manhole cover, sharply corrugated in the first place, was beyond the wit of our officer. Why the man should strike a match to examine the manhole cover to be sure that he had the right one was another rather asinine trick. This person was at length satisfied, for he rolled over on his back and with much exertion because of his girth, worked himself under the chassis. 
Our officer, seeking companionship, softly resumed his vamp and propelled himself toward the stalled car and its horizontal mechanician. The passenger in the seat was enveloped in bearskins to his chin. His chin was shrouded with a truly Bismarckian mustache, and a pair of obsolete goggles bridged the gap between the bow of the mustache and the peak of the cap. He looked exactly like the cartoons of motorists before the days of windshields. At sight of the sculling policeman, the man in bearskins mechanically began exploring the depths of his furs and produced therefrom two cigars, one of which he handed without a word to the officer. The other he applied to the recesses of his mustache, igniting the tip with a pocket lighter, which evidently he carried palmed for such occasions. He nodded a greeting to the policeman and watched with some curiosity as Officer 004 deftly transferred the cigar to the crown of his helmet. "'Here's another for your brother,' said the man in bearskins, producing another cigar, and our policeman, not at all nonplussed by the windfall, sent this second offering to join the first. "'Break down,' said the policeman, by way of opening a vein of sympathy and understanding. His words seemed for the first time to awaken the man under the engine to a consciousness of his presence, for the man below, himself enveloped in goggles, thrust out his head. "'No,' said the man under the car. Not a breakdown. We are sewer inspectors, testing manholes. The policeman readily traced the source of this wit to the waffle-like manhole cover on which the man lay prostrate and smiled indulgently. He could while away the remaining few minutes of his watch giving advice. In these days of foolproof motors with needle valves, butterfly shutters, and tubes so placed that they can be doctored from above instead of below, the sight of a horizontal motorist was becoming rare, even in the barbershop papers. Nineteen-seven Herkimer, said the policeman to himself scornfully, taking note of the hub. Once before he became an officer, he had begun a correspondence course in automobile engineering, and he had progressed so far that he was able to classify machines according to the cryptic designs of their hubs. That was long ago. A motorist of today, who was so far put to it that he drove a Herkimer of 1907 model, must be far put to it indeed. "'Don't mind my friend,' said the man in bearskins, contentedly drawing at his cigar. "'He has been sitting up all night with his sick car, and it is getting on his nerves. Do you happen to have the correct time, officer?' It lacked five minutes of the hour of two. This seemingly innocent fact caused quite a commotion between the two motorists, and for a moment they argued in lively fashion back and forth. The only thing they agreed on was that their respective watches differed by three minutes and ten seconds of eternal time, as indicated by the policeman's timepiece. Indeed, the exactness of the hour seemed of such importance to these two, apparently hung up for the rest of the night with their sick car, that the obliging officer ran across the street to verify his faith in his own timepiece by a jeweler's chronometer ticking away in the half-shadow of a barred window. When he returned, the man in furs had submerged himself to the ears in his great collar, and only the lazily winking cigar protruding from the enveloping folds gave signs of life. The policeman squatted on his heels and held matches in close proximity to the gasoline feed, while the man underneath sweated and swore but did not remove his goggles. Then came the welcome clatter of a distant nightstick on the pavement, as strident as a drumbeat, and Officer 004 took his leave gracefully and made his way toward the river with light foot. His relief was calling. His day off had begun. His head was full of fish. He did not once glance round. Had he done so, 
he might have seen the head of the man in furs emerge from its enshrouding collar and turn cautiously. The man lifted a heavy instrument which looked like a pair of bloom shears, but might have been an automobile jack, and set it down on the pavement beside the car. Then he waited for thirty seconds. At the end of that time, apparently unmindful of his mechanician, he touched the button of an up-to-date starter. The engine purred softly, and the car slid away as easily as if coasting downhill instead of uphill, for the car turned into the upgrade of Maiden Lane to Broadway, and then north. The hollow silence shut down again. The canyon was deserted. Only the manhole cover now marked the spot where, five minutes before, Providence had presented Policeman 004 with two cigars against his day off on the banks. A two-hour's wink on his cot in the dormitory would fortify our sportsman for the pleasures of the day ahead, so he reflected, as he divested himself of his shoes and belt and lay down to lull himself to sleep, with the problem of whether the weather would be more propitious for shrimps than bloodworms as bait. But it was not to be. Later in his career, Officer 004 more than once used the incident of this morning to drive in his lessons to the rookies who came his way, that a patrolman of the first grade must on no account exercise his discretion. Discretion is all right for captains, or even for lieutenants, on occasions, but the little blue book states clearly what a patrolman must do under certain circumstances. Rule number 26 covers the case in point. If our policeman had done his duty as he saw it, he would have jugged those two night birds and appeared in court at the break of day to witness against them for violating the rules of the road. The judge would have listened to three words. Ten dollars, he would have said, and with fair winds blowing, policeman 004 might have caught the eight o'clock boat and the nine o'clock train to Huguenots and had his play with a fish in spite of himself. Traffic rules are traffic rules, even in Nassau Street at two in the morning. The superiority of bloodworms, in spite of the price, had won the debate, when suddenly the slumbers of Officer 004 were interrupted by a crashing clamor that seemed to jar the very plaster of the room. It was followed instantly by the thumping of stockinged feet falling off the forests of cots. Sharp cries and indistinct commands burst in through the door of the drill room. A volley of musketry, which seemed to come from the street, told the sleepy senses of the fishermen that the automobile reserve wagon was waiting with noisy impatience at the curb. He fell into his shoes, scooped up his belt, his club, his revolver, and his helmet, and joined the rush to the front room. He was buckling on his belt, as he said here, to the roll call. He was buttoning his blouse, as he stumbled on the heels of the man ahead of him in the double trot to the street. He was climbing into the green wagon that holds forty men on a pinch and takes them where they want to go at forty miles an hour, if necessary, when he discovered that he had tipped his precious cigars out of his helmet. Cedar Street, straight across, William the Broadway, remember, a solid line, not a man to pass, someone was shouting to the lieutenant who swung on the footboard. And they were off round the first corner at a gate that threatened to capsize them. At William, the police wagon began spilling policemen as peas rolling out of a pod. Officer 004 tumbled out at Nassau, and his feet struck to the pavement where they struck. That was orders. Not a man was to pass. Every twenty feet stood a policeman, trying his best to gather his still slumbering wits and to make head or tail out of the situation. There was not the familiar sting of smoke in the air that usually accounts for such a midnight upheaval. 
neither was the clang of the police wagon to be heard on all sides now, met by the answering wail of fire-truck sirens, that strange wail which in the dead of night is like nothing so much as the howl of a panther with its head buried in some mud-cavern. But bells, 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 everywhere the angry clang of bells, fast, slow, whimpering, booming, they shiver the early morning air with their insistent clamor. First precinct reserves, close order, forward, double-quick came the bellowing order of a megaphone from the Broadway end, and the men closed up and started forward on a run. At Broadway they were shunted to the north, at Maiden Lane they were dropped twenty feet apart east to Williams. "'Not a man to pass!' roared the megaphone, and its echoes had scarcely died away when a little police automobile sped up and came to a stop. Two men got out. One was the inspector of the district. The other was a man in civilian's clothes. He was roaring at the top of his voice. Hell no, who said the lane? Number three cable is gone now. Throw this line across Fulton Street. And before the blown reserves could get their breath, they were bellowed into double quick again and shot up Broadway another eighth of a mile. As they were thrown crosstown at Fulton Street, they were met by the advance line of scouts from Park Row. Emergency reporters panting, some of them without hats or coats in the rush of the moment of alarm. You can't get through, said the lieutenant, running forward to meet them. Instantly there was the flashing of silver stars and reporters' police cards, the sesame by which the press crowds to the front row of the thrillers that are staged every hour of the day and night in this city of five million souls. "'I don't give three whoops if you're the angel Gabriel. You can't get through. Them's orders,' roared the lieutenant, and he reached out and caught one daring fellow by the collar and sent him spinning to the gutter. "'Here's a man through from the other end,' cried one of the angry reporters. They all turned. A young man, his ulster flapping in the wind, was running toward them. "'You can't pass!' cried the lieutenant, barring his way. "'Who says I can't? Inspector Wiegan put me through at John Street. Take your hands off me. What the devil is the matter with you mutts, anyway? Every reserve south of 42nd Street is here, and you've got a line strung solid around twenty blocks, and there isn't a man among you with wit enough to know what's happened. Gad! Look at that!' His last exclamation was caused by a sudden bursting into light of the tall towers of the international life. One by one the floors counted themselves, as some hand threw on the current at the electric switch. Then a neighboring building began to wink light through its windows, then another, and another. The Wall Street and Maiden Lane district was opening its eyes wide in the dead of night. The shiny pavement was flooded with reflection. The dull sky overhead caught the glare and threw it back as a luminous cloud. In the Pearl Street converting station, the Edison superintendent sprang from his couch at the clang of a warning bell and ran to the switchboard. The needle of the dial he looked at was jumping toward a thousand amperes at a time. The lone set of converters carrying for the night load south of Canal Street was as hot to the touch as a flat iron under the stress of a sudden excess of electric current. The superintendent threw in one machine after another at the giant switchboard. The needle had now touched the index of the peak of the load, the normal capacity of the electric service to be had from this station. "'Who the devil is celebrating at this hour?' he exclaimed, glancing over at the clock. It lacked five minutes of three. He ran up a flight of iron steps to a balcony hanging on the side of the south wall and peered out of the window. The skyscraper line of the lower part of the island was like a huge heap of glittering yellow jewels. Every window, to the topmost of the towers, was aglow with light. 2. 
At seven o'clock on that momentous October morning, which was always afterward referred to by the Edison superintendent as the time we hit the peak of the load with a jump of 4,000 amps at 3 a.m., and by Officer 004 as the day I did not go fishing. At seven o'clock that morning, the cordon of police was still being drawn tight across Fulton to William, down William to Pearl, down Pearl to the spot where it crosses Broadway for the second time, in that street's crooked career through lower New York, and up Broadway to meet the start of the line at Fulton. Gradually, however, the excitement focused itself at a point in Dutch Street, where the new manufacturing jewelers building stands, a stone's throw from Maiden Lane. This building is the last work in the art of safety devices as applied to fire and burglar hazard. It is absolutely unburnable, they say. Dizzy Sunday story specialists have attempted to compute the wealth in gold and precious stones that finds its way into this tall skyscraper, given over entirely to manufacturing jewelers, in the course of a year. A knowledge of logarithms is necessary in the calculation. Knights of the road occasionally stop on the opposite side of the street and look with longing eyes at the tall façade, every window of which seems to nod an invitation. Usually these gentlemen, if they stand too long in one spot, are tapped on the shoulder by total strangers and requested to move on, back, not forward. The old deadline, relic of the days of a great policeman, has long since passed into history as a police institution in the Maiden Lane district. The public did not take to the idea of a squad of plainclothes police telling a man in which direction he might walk the free streets of the city, no matter what the record of the man might be. But the association of jewelers themselves, recognizing the value of the old deadline, have always maintained it at their own expense. At seven in the morning, two squads of men, one of police and the other of gray-coated specials, getting no response to repeated knocking of the big bronze gate that closed the corridor in the night time, set to work with sledges and jacks and soon had the gate open. Their fears were doubled by the fact that the din occasioned by the battering did not bring the body of watchmen who guarded this building during every hour of the day and night. The building was fully illuminated like the rest, showing that some hand had manipulated the switch at the first alarm. Next they attacked the inside doors. These proved to be more easily negotiable. On the floor in front of the elevator cage they found the captain of the night watch bound and gagged an ugly streak of dried blood matting his hair and covering his forehead. He was released, but he was found to be in so serious a condition that it was necessary to transfer him at once to Governor Hospital. Inside an elevator, the rescue party found two more of the watch, bound together back to back, all but unconscious from the choking effect of ligatures around their necks. They had been chloroformed and were still in so dazed a condition that they could throw little light on the situation. Indeed, later their sole knowledge appeared to be that they had been suddenly set on, overpowered, and bound. They had seen nothing. The captains of the two squads telephoned their chiefs at once. They had found the storm center. Deputy Burns of the police was a former Secret Service man, drafted into the city service because of his knowledge of crime and criminals. Captain Dunstan of the private corporation, the burglar alarm system that was living a night of history, had been one of the deputy's chief aides in the government work, and he possessed, in addition to a knowledge of crime and criminals, a technical skill that had enabled him to perfect the burglar alarm system believed by experts to be absolutely invulnerable. And now, at this moment, the vaunted mechanism was a tangle of useless wires. 
three of the main cables had been cut, and at the moment that Officer 004 was tumbled out of bed by the riot call, the indicators on the sensitive burglar alarm switchboard in John Street, if they were voracious, reported the astounding fact that over 1,700 safes were being tampered with at the same moment. 1,700 strong boxes bulging with wealth were shrieking for help. Not exactly at the same moment, however, for the cunning thief had cut the cables with intervals of one minute between, first the lead-enclosed chief carrying nearly 500 pairs of wires, the sensory nerves of the rich vaults lying below Cedar Street. At the deafening persistent clang of that first alarm, the authorities, dumbfounded at the extent of the catastrophe, had thrown their cordon of police around this small district, drawing it so tight that it seemed no man could escape. Then with a crash, the switchboard of District Number 2 went to pieces, and in another sixty seconds, District Number 3 added its bells to the bedlam. Then it was that the police lines were moved as far north as Fulton, and the call was sent forth for all reserves south of 125th Street. Burns and Dunstan, summoned from opposite quarters to the jeweler's building, arrived simultaneously. Grave as was the crisis, as their eyes met and they clasped hands, they burst into a laugh. This outdistanced even their experience. "'Picked up anybody?' asked Dunstan. "'I'll wager you haven't nabbed the man who had brains enough to touch off these 1,700 burglar alarms at once.' "'Oh, we've got the usual riff-raft,' said Burns. "'Some bums, a couple of scrub-women, a handful of firemen from the big buildings, and so on. It's hard on them, but it can't be helped. The only thing promising was one man who had a reporter's card, but he bluffed the lieutenant and got through the lines. "'Well, Captain,' said the deputy, turning to one of his men. What is it? Where did they spring the trap? The police captain saluted and led the way to the second floor of the building. This entire floor was occupied by Ludwig Telfen. If you are fortunate enough to possess an ornament enclosing jewels of something finer than usual water, the chances are that if you take a sharp glass and look on the reverse side, you will find a little mark formed by the looping together of the capitals L and T and you can rest assured that if Ludwig Telfen made the setting, the gems it encloses are worth far more than the gold that clasps them, no matter how exquisite the setting, no matter if Benvenito himself made the design. Ludwig Telfen once came into prominence by his refusal to assemble a certain famous brooch of pearls that had paid $100,000 in customs duties on the ground that they were imitations. He, of a dozen jewelers and experts, was the only one to discern the fraud. Phew! All Telfin, eh? That's bad as a starter, exclaimed Burns under his breath. The main entrance to the suite occupied by Telfin stood open. A new light as to the daring of this deed burst on Burns, used to shocks as he was. Rough work, that, he said, turning to Dunstan. What was the exact hour the first switchboard went off? Two forty-five to the second. Hell broke loose. I was asleep upstairs. I thought the roof had caved in. Then came the second and the third, 1,756 all at once. I never expect to hear a record like that again. 1,756 chances to one, said Burns. And they proceeded, examining every step of the way. Here a door was battered, there a litter of glass on the floor, with nearly 1,800 strong boxes within a radius of half a mile shrieking burglars. The master thief had gone straight to the mark. There was no mistaking the mark. It stood in the middle of a great room, the famous safe of Ludwig Telfen. The grating about it was crumpled like cloth. This safe has been described so many times in the press that it is worth only a line here. 
Not content with Harveyized steel, the makers constructed an envelope of armored concrete 18 inches thick on all four sides. The safe stood in the middle of the room like a four-square tomb in its cathedral crypt. Even after the wonderfully ingenious locks had been manipulated, a section of the floor must be lowered before the door could be opened. That section of flooring, solid concrete, was lowered now. It lay six inches below the surrounding level. Burns sprang forward with a cry of amazement. He seized the pilot wheel and whirled it. The great door of the safe swung silently open like some animate thing, and the darkness of the interior yawned on the tense little party. Burns turned with a queer gesture. The gesture said, It's all over. When the door, once started on its half-revolution, touched a certain angle, an electric contact was made, and the interior suddenly glowed with scores of incandescent lights. On the floor lay a crude-appearing mechanism, consisting of two unusually long carbon rods bound together, though insulated from each other, and connected with an electric transformer such as is used in welding. On the floor, too, were scores of crumpled envelopes, all empty. Metal doors that lined the walls of the interior hung slatternly on rudely twisted hinges, disclosing metal boxes, empty. Burns himself, matter-of-fact, unromantic, stirred more easily by deeds than by poetic suggestion, found himself trying to decipher the symbols with which the empty envelopes were penciled. Each symbol held its story of treasures of gold and gems, men's greed, women's vanity and tears. How much was gone? How much remained? Only old Telfin himself, with shrewd, pasty mask of a face, with its high, thin nose and lips as thin as a slit in ivory, only old Telfin himself could tell. But the thief! What a thief! On the floor, carefully laid aside, was the ransom of a king. Rare designs and special metals, fragile baskets woven of threads of gold as fine as silk, wreaths of stubborn platinum worked with infinite patience and skill into little nests to receive their precious jewels, the almost medieval trappings designed for the oratory of the wife of a multimillionaire. These, magnificent in themselves, were thrust aside, ignored as dross, for the masterpieces the famous vault contained. While eighteen hundred bells were shrieking, crying in terror, while cordons of police were being thrown about, so that even a crawling animal could not escape, while guardians of the mammoth treasure were rushing frantically about, seeking the thousand thieves in one, or the one thief in a thousand, this master rogue had with unerring hand cracked the biggest prize in the city, and with the coolness of a connoisseur had tested, weighed, and rejected, and taken his fill. Then Ludwig Telfin himself came, white and terrible to behold. Burns established field headquarters on the spot, and his lieutenants were coming and going with his tense commands. He reinforced the lines around the desolated blocks, until in police parlance the four streets that held the cordon together were one continuous circle of peg-posts. But no one realized more than Burns himself the futility of such a course. He tightened the lines merely because it was the obvious thing to do. There was one chance in a thousand that the bird had not yet flown. Newspaper men were assaulting the lines on all sides, but all for no purpose. There was no juice in the turnip for them. Extras were flooding the streets. Throngs were hurrying downtown by every line of cars, surging against the impregnable police wall by thousands. But the best they could get in the way of information 
was the fact that nearly 2,000 burglar alarms had gone off at the same moment and left uncovered the richest camp in the world, measured in terms of gold and gems. That the reserves of the whole island had now been summoned to hold the impregnable wall was in itself a drug that fed the popular imagination beyond the heights of reason, a mechanical system fairly devilish in its ingenuity, invulnerable beyond its double and redoubled lines of defense, had been swept away by a single stroke, as a tornado levels a plain or a flood engulfs a valley. Bankers, brokers, merchants, jewelers, goldsmiths, the aristocracy of wealth and trade that hives in this quarter in the daylight hours and draws on the world for capital, rushed to the scene, frantically importunate, hurling themselves against that stubborn line that knew no orders except from one source, the huge silent man with square jaws, square mustache, and square shoes, who was sitting in the offices of Ludwig Telfen, examining a set of powerful bloom shears that had been found in a manhole in Nassau Street. The blades of this set of shears had a cutting strength of thousands of pounds. A child executing gentle pressure on the powerful lever could slice a great piece of metal in twain as if it were sausage. The emergency crew of the protective system had discovered the spot where the cables had been rent asunder early in the excitement, with their charts showing the location of every trunk of the monster nerve system of burglar protection, they had followed up the main cables manhole by manhole until they finally came to the corrugated cover on which the fat man in goggles had rusted himself to get a view of the astronomical inaccuracies of the inside of his car. The manhole was a roomy affair. It had to be to accommodate men working at the cables, which are tested regularly with the finest instruments known to science. The expert who had cut the cables had evidently spent some time awaiting the mystic hour. A dozen cigarette butts scattered about the cement well showed that he had awaited the appointed second without impatience, and having accomplished his task, he had left this set of bloom shears behind as a clue, whatever that might be worth, and had gone to the trouble of putting the manhole cover back in its seat with some care. He had probably escaped by Broadway. That meant running a hundred yards before the first section of the police cordon could be summoned. The blades of the shears were covered with a coating of lead and copper like a film of grease. There was a calm, cool insolence about the whole thing that got on Burns' nerves. A bureau of identification was established at eight o'clock for the clamoring bankers and jewelers. Every mother's son of them had to be identified before he could enter the lines, and then he entered under guard and opened his safes under guard. One by one the treasure vaults were checked off as their contents were found to be intact. As the vaults were surrendered to their owners, the guard would move on to the next and the next. It was not until noon that the inventory had been made throughout the district. Of all the district, only the strong room, the fabled strong room of Ludwig Telfen, had been tapped. The genius of the night, then, had jammed the entire machinery of the street and the lane, rousted it from its bed with shrieking clamors for the police, simply for the opportunity of attacking this one prize. The white-faced Telfin, inscrutable even in this hour, deciphered the stories of the empty envelopes one by one. It was at ten o'clock when he crumpled up and was carried away. The Bentori crucifix was gone, with its one matchless sapphire. The Dalgoda pearl, the great canary diamond, the diamond of the Safaron's family, with its creepy history. A Hindustani ruby called the well, a pale blue hyacinth, on whose broad table had been carved a symbol that had baffled the greatest archaeologists, and a baker's dozen of unset diamonds carefully matched as to size and color. Not a thief, merely. 
an artist had picked here. The strong room of Ludwig Telfen, as we have said, stood in the middle of the room like a tomb in a crypt with its sheathing of concrete. It was like a monolith the size of a dozen elephants. A workman with the coldest drawn chisel would laugh at an order to drill through the adamant in an eight-hour day. Yet a hole the size of a man's thigh penetrated the mass, leading straight and true to the very heart of the ingenious mechanism hidden within, a mechanism in itself believed to be indestructible. It was not indestructible. The same brain that had known the spot to tap the monolith, and then had devised the means of tapping it, had played with the safe as though it had been a toy instead of a thing hundreds of men of talent had made their life work. A pellet of some explosive at the right spot had destroyed the spark of life, and once destroyed, the mechanism of the doors, as beautiful as the inside of a watch, became merely a jumble of senseless cogs. "'Can you figure it?' asked Burns, inspecting the huge hole in the monolith. "'It's beyond me, I must admit.' "'I don't know,' said Dunstan, "'but I'm going to find out.' He connected the set of carbon rods to the electric switch panel in the corridor through a transformer. "'If I figure it right,' he said, "'there are a thousand amperes of electricity flowing through these rods when the current is turned on. One-tenth of an ampere will kill a man under certain conditions. Look at this.' He kicked the switch with his foot, and instantly a blue-white flame, an arc of blinding intensity, shot across the gap between the ends of the carbon rods, hissing ominously. He handled the rods with his bare hands. "'Harmless as a kitten,' he said as Burns cried out in dismay. He held the hissing arc against the side of the vault. The cement seemed to shrink before it and melt. It dissolved into a fine dust that hung in the air. "'They tell us that that concrete will withstand any fire. It did in San Francisco.' Look at that! Concrete will stand two thousand degrees of heat, but it won't stand this heat. Burns, he cried, sobered, as he kicked over the switch and dropped the electric torch. When they come this good, we can't beat them. We just haven't got the brains. That's all there is to it. 3. Captain Hapenny, that blue-eyed son of Yorkshire who patrolled the waters of Raritan Bay at night, to locate the universities of fish for his customers in daytime, waited long and finally impatiently at the musty Huguenot's wharf that memorable morning for policeman 004. Finally he gave up and went out to his lobster pots. As for Officer 004, he dozed away the morning on his peg post in Fulton Street, dimly conscious that a cataclysm had occurred in his immediate neighborhood, of such proportions as to rouse that hard-sleeping locality for once in its life. On the whole, it pleased him to consider that there were rabbits in this graveyard after all. Such a scurrying he had never seen before in his short period as patrolman of the first grade. Shortly after noon the order came to break ranks, and the mystic cordon, the wonder of a gaping crowd, dissolved into thin air and was gone. Our officer purchased a copy of the press and verified his fears that high tide was due off the hook at 11.33 a.m., which meant that the only promise his disrupted day off now held for him was to take all his clothes off, go to bed, and luxuriate in sleep. So he wended his way slowly to the old slip station. The surroundings were beginning to take on their usual air. The rattle of trucks and the odor of fish from the Fulton Market filled the senses. A shock awaited him. As he ascended the steps and clumped across the floor to report himself out at the desk, the fragrance of cigar smoke smote his nostrils. 
His captain, bleary-eyed with his unusual exertions, was leaning back in his big chair, his feet cocked on the corner of the desk, and he was pulling at a cigar, painting the atmosphere with spirals of smoke, as if he had at last found the solace he read about in books. It was not the undignified sight of his captain, with feet higher than his head, that roused the dull mind of Policeman 004. It was the band of the cigar. The band was a brilliant red and blue. The policeman scratched his head and churned his memory. He was painfully extracting a swollen foot from a shoe when light broke on him. It was as clear as day now. That was his cigar. He distinctly remembered the band. A kind, though not over-sociable, gentleman in a stalled automobile had presented him with that cigar earlier in the morning. In fact, had presented him with two of them, one for his brother. And this low-life captain had cribbed them out of his helmet while Officer 004 stared vacantly at a spider constructing an engineering work at a window pane with a skill beyond human. He slowly pushed his suffering foot back into a shoe and, his head traveling like a Coney Island merry-go-round, he bent over and absent-mindedly began fastening the laces. He shook himself as though in a cold draft. He bit off part of a fingernail. "'Mulligan,' he said, addressing a man packing a kit on the opposite side of the room. "'Did I hear you was set down already?' "'The devil take him,' said Mulligan between his teeth. "'And all because somebody tampered with a manhole on me post when I was at the other end of the beat.' "'What's the force coming to these days?' I ask. "'It'll cost me ten days' pay at least, mind you.' Officer 004, somewhat dazed, passed out. At the corner of Nassau and Maiden Lane, he found a crowd collected about the very manhole his friend of the night before had selected with so much care as the spot on which to lie down. A pot of wiping solder, looking blue and cool, was thoughtfully bubbling over a gasoline torch and the manhole, now open, was filled with men in jeans, plumbers, thought our officer, like bees in a bee-trap. Officer 004, mouth open, like a sucker drinking in air at the top of a weedy pool of water, listened to the man on post explain the lay of the land. Then he put his hands in his trousers' pockets, in defiance of the rules and regulations, and started east. At Dutch Street he picked out the manufacturing jeweler's building, and on the second floor, after considerable embarrassment, he found Deputy Burns. Officer 004 was not exactly a word artist. More especially, he was not a word artist when on the carpet under the eye of this particular superior, who had a distressing way of looking at him. Herkimer, 1907 model, repeated the deputy. Very good. Report to Farley at headquarters. I'll see you there. Now there are a hundred thousand automobiles in the city and vicinity of New York. The horsepower, make, and ownership of each is a matter of record. All that is required is infinite patience, or a superfluity of clerks among whom to divide impatience. The Herkimer of the vintage of 1907 was a limited edition that was called in shortly after being put out. A few still crept wearily about the city as though tired of life and its attending ills. At three o'clock that afternoon, an automobile drew up to the entrance of headquarters, then in Mulberry Street. It was a Herkimer, model 1907. Two detectives, undoubtedly detectives from the closely shaved and shiny appearance, helped out a man of middle age, somewhat gray, pasty, and frightened. He was chewing on a cigar that sported a red and blue band. As he got down, a messenger boy on a bicycle rushed up, dropping his wheel with a clatter, and seizing the prisoner, there was no doubt he was such, by the sleeve, he thrust an envelope into his hand. 
Mr. Merwin, gasped the boy, I have been chasing you all the way down. Had he not been so badly upset, Mr. Merwin might have been astonished. As it was, he stared stupidly from the envelope to the messenger boy, and thence to the cloud of reporters the detectives were beating back. He was hurried to the office of the deputy commissioner. Burns wheeled in his chair. Merwin! Aye, aye! ejaculated the usually collected deputy. What the deuce are you doing in this mess? From the expression on Merwin's face, he himself was still struggling for an explanation why two detectives had gently but firmly insisted on his driving them to headquarters just because he happened to own a Herkimer, reconstructed, 1907. Burns turned to the others with a nod of dismissal. Then he turned on Merwin. He could not bring himself to believe that this notorious crank, this nuisance who had made himself the bane of police administrations for the last ten years, could have a guilty knowledge of the catastrophe of the morning. Yet he shut his teeth down hard, glared at the trembling yet defiant figure before him, and cried out fiercely, Well, out with it, quick! There was something in the attack of Burns that turned the average man inside out. The effect on Merwin, the crank, was peculiar. Merwin suddenly straightened up. He crushed the envelope he held and waved his hands on high. His eyes blazed. "'I have proved it,' he cried triumphantly. "'The whole town is laughing at you. Burglar protection. Bah! One, two, three. I slice your cables. Yes, a child could have done it. I have exploded your system. Ha-ha!' Burns sprang at him with the roar of an animal. He seized the man in his grasp and hurled him against a wall. "'You and your damned patents that have made you a pest for ten years,' he cried. "'Don't start that on me. Come down to earth. Who told you to do it? Who walked through Ludwig Telfin's strongroom and took his pick of what he found there while you were chopping the cables with your infernal shears? Spit it out. Who was it? Quick!' The infuriated deputy dropped the man and backed away from him. "'Telfin? Strongroom? Took his pick? Why, man, it was to be a joke, a jest. I am. I am a genius.' I needed only this to prove my system. Telfin, did you say? He, 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 yes, he. Who was he? The inventor, who for years had striven by every means known to insane persistence to foist his worthless electrical protective system on the city, gradually collected his senses. Burns got the story of the Duke piecemeal. It seemed that Merwin had encountered an engaging young dandy on a recent weekend visit to Atlantic City. This person had seemed particularly interested in, though politely skeptical of, Merwin's pet theories as to the weakness of the protective system in vogue in the large cities. So skeptical indeed was he that their somewhat heated argument had ended in a wager, a stake of $1,000, that Merwin, by the simple means he had described, could not at a given hour on a given night render the treasure vaults of the city of New York or de Cambon. They had settled the hour then and there. The electrician was smiling like a child when he ended them. "'I have showed them up! I have showed them up!' he cried, his insane pride getting the better of him again. "'With one stroke I have proved to this great city that its fancied security is as thin as—no more of that. We've something more serious on just now than rival systems. You cut the cables, you admit.' "'I did. I certainly did. That's my set of bloom shears on your desk now. This young man was a genius. There was no other way to show you. My brother took me down to Nassau Street, and we waited until the cops changed posts. Lord, I know the plan of their mains like I know the humps in my own bed. Simple? Why, as the showing up of the egregious asinine—' In his excitement he tore apart the envelope he was crushing in his hands. Two halves of a thousand-dollar bill dropped out. 
the wager the wager he saw it he's paid it cried merwin the thief cried burns on a slip of paper with a bill was the line typewritten my compliments you have convinced me seeking the engaging young man who had made the estimable though fanatical electrician his easy dupe in the matter of looting the ludwig telfen strong-room burns paid a visit to the address indicated in the enclosure needless to say however neither the name nor the description the electrician furnished was recognized by the respectable landlady who answered the bell so ended the incident of the night of the thousand thieves the feat taking its place among the many unsolved mysteries there were clues it is true but they were too insolently obvious on the face to lead anywhere the misguided inventor passed the remainder of his days in confinement childishly happy at having achieved his life's ambition it is interesting to note in passing that of the rare gems so carefully selected from the telfin strong room that morning only one was ever traced the story has never been verified it is a myth at the head of navigation on the sanguiny river rests a little chapel built by fishermen on the cliffs above stands the figure of a virgin the thanks offering of those saved from the sea the lost bentori crucifix is said to hang in the chapel it is mentioned merely as a coincidence that the exquisite godal a famous cosmopolite the infallible godal whose true character was never known until the publication of the memoirs of this master rogue was once rescued from drowning at this spot. End of the Night of a Thousand Thieves